Hello and welcome to The Age Stage. I'm Brendan Telfer and this week a special Solving Alzheimer's, a BBC World Service special written and presented by Andrew Bomford and produced by Estelle Doyle. Originally a three-part BBC World Series which we have edited. Alzheimer's, the world's most challenging disease. My grandmother had Alzheimer's and I, I saw this disease up close and personal and I watched it systematically disassemble the brilliant, wonderful woman who was my grandmother. That is legitimately terrifying. My expert for this program. Hi, my name is Lisa Genova. I'm a neuroscientist and author. I write about people living with neurological diseases and disorders who tend to be ignored, feared, and misunderstood. This disease is terrifying and frustrating and embarrassing and confusing and it would be much easier not to look at this and to pretend it doesn't exist and to hope it doesn't affect us. And yet the very real statistics, what's actually happening now, and this is going to get worse, is that right now at 85, one in three people have Alzheimer's and that number is fast approaching one in two. Dementia describes a number of degenerative brain conditions, but the most common one is Alzheimer's disease, which starts with short-term memory loss and confusion. We'll tell you what it is and how all attempts to cure it have failed, how fear in some parts of the world is stigmatizing those who have it and denying help to those who need it. But we'll also learn how to overcome the fear. There's no discrimination with this disease. It, it crosses all cultures and boundaries and gender, and it affects everyone. Based on the numbers, this disease stands to be the financial, emotional, spiritual sinkhole of this century. I mean, the wave coming is like nothing we've ever seen. In the developed world, most of us who make it to middle age are now expected to live well into our 80s and 90s a trend the rest of the world is fast catching up with. So we've gained all of these bonus years in longevity, which is fantastic, but not if the price for that longevity is you're gonna have Alzheimer's and you're gonna forget everything you've ever learned, everything you've ever known, your family, your achievements, your identity. So yeah, this is gonna land in your lap if you live long enough. And this is not the price you want to pay for living into old age. So we need to collectively, as a global community, do something about this. To understand the stigma, we need to understand what makes this disease so unsettling and frightening. Neuroscientist Lisa Genova. For someone who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the disease has actually been present in that person's brain for, we think, between 15 to 20 years. And for all those years, abnormal proteins called amyloid beta and tau have been slowly building up in the brain, blocking communication between neurons, eventually affecting the janitor cells in our brain that are trying to clean things up but can't keep a handle of this and eventually the cell deaths. And this begins in a part of the brain called the hippocampus. It's a structure that's essential for the formation of new memories. And so this is why we see the first symptoms of Alzheimer's as people forgetting what happened earlier today or what you said a few minutes ago. Almost all the drugs that have been in clinical trials for the past 10 to 20 years for Alzheimer's have failed at huge cost to pharmaceutical companies. One giant, Pfizer, has pulled out altogether. Part of the reason the scientists think the drugs don't work is because the brain damage is too far gone by the time the people in these trials show the symptoms. So remember, the beginning of the disease is amyloid beta piling up. So it's like, imagine amyloid plaques as a lit match. And when you're symptomatic, the match sets fire to the whole brain. Your brain is ablaze with Alzheimer's. So the people in these trials had brains ablaze with Alzheimer's, and we've got a drug that's blowing out a match. Others compare this final stage of Alzheimer's to a brain failure leading to death. Like any organ failure, it's almost impossible to reverse. But the drugs might work, scientists now believe, in people who've not yet developed the symptoms. The investment required is massive, a billion dollars in 10 years to 
launch a drug and it may fail. And in fact, they've all been failing. So while that sounds enormously discouraging, we're not short on players here. There are about 50 million people worldwide with Alzheimer's today. And with the baby boomer populations in the U.S. and in Asia, those numbers are going to skyrocket in the next decade. So the market potential for a drug that prevents or delays or treats Alzheimer's is still massive beyond measure. I'm not discouraged at all. I, I truly believe we're going to see a preventative me medicine for Alzheimer's. It's certainly within my lifetime, I'm 48. I think we'll see it within the next 10 to 15 years. One of the biggest challenges is the timescales. This is dated May the 12th, 1990, Saturday, she's written. I am writing this because I'm afraid I have Alzheimer's. I have thought about this. Kate Latto is reading an extract from a diary written by her mother, Patricia, when she was in her mid-60s, almost 30 years ago. My mind is full of holes. Tonight, I have quoted Yeats, Macefield, Shakespeare, word for word, without hesitation. So why do I find it so difficult to sign my name? It just doesn't make sense. And though Patricia could see the signs, she was too frightened to get tested. So she wasn't actually diagnosed with Alzheimer's for another 20 years. How many long sounds did you count? Four. Kate, Patricia's daughter, is one of about 500 participants in a UK study called PREVENT. It's been following people for the last five years and will continue for the rest of their lives. Participants are given a regular series of tests, including brain scans and cognitive tests. They're looking for the earliest signs, known as biomarkers, of what years later might become Alzheimer's. Okay. I'd like you to repeat each name as soon as you have heard it. Malcolm. Malcolm. Michael. Michael. The study Holly. was set up by Professor Craig Ritchie after a challenge from one of his patients whose parents both had Alzheimer's. He asked the doctor a simple question. What's my risk and what should I do about it? There was no easy answer to give. That question runs through everything we do. What is my risk and what can I do about it? Because I want to be able to, in five years' time or ten years' time, be able to sit down with a person who's in their 50s and I can say your risk is X percent and this is what you can do about it and it'll make a difference. Professor Ritchie says in the rush to develop drugs for Alzheimer's, we may have put the cart before the horse, tried to cure a disease not well enough understood in the first place. He thinks the work being done now perhaps should have been done 20 years ago. Why do people get Alzheimer's disease? Is it because of you know, your genetics, is it your family history, is it any sort of environmental factors? So for this project, we've got to measure all of those things. We've got to do really deep analysis of people's brains. So we do spinal fluid, we look at blood markers, we do neuroimaging, and track these things over time. Remember Lisa's description of the fire in the brain? Knowing what those biomarkers are could mean that fire being extinguished or at least fire-braked by drugs when it's still just a smouldering ember. What we want to do is, is to have people to enjoy you know, good brain health for as long as possible and probably die roughly the same time point. So you die with Alzheimer's disease rather than from Alzheimer's disease. But the drugs are proving elusive. Global giants like AstraZeneca, Lilly, Merck and Roche have been stung as one by one their promising drugs fail during trials. Phyllis Ferrell, the global Alzheimer's lead at the US multinational Lilly, says no disease has been as challenging as Alzheimer's. Truly, Alzheimer's disease looks different. We are at a 99.6% failure rate in Alzheimer's disease, and you just don't see that in any other disease states. And I think for Alzheimer's disease, it's a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm of the brain, which is the last frontier from a health perspective. We know probably 10% of what we could know. And then you have this relentless disease that is progresses very, very slowly, which makes the ability to study it a slow process. Mm -hmm. 
One of Lilly's multi-million dollar research facilities is here at Earlwood in the UK. After the disappointments with drugs targeting the protein amyloid in the brain, the company is now focusing on another abnormal protein, tau, which kills the brain neurons themselves. We'll get to the tissue section in a minute, right? Yeah, there's a lot. You can see here. This is all the pinkish stuff. A scientist is slicing sections of a mouse brain showing large amounts of Alzheimer's damage. And Michael Hutton, the UK scientific lead for Lilly, shows me an image of it. Stained a vivid red, the dead neurons do indeed look like a fire has raged through the brain. You see the progression. The brain is shrinking, very similar to the shrinkage that we see in the human patient. And it shrinks because the neurons are dying and their processes are shrinking back. It's taken years of research to get to even this stage, and there'll be years more to get a drug safety tested for use on humans, to say nothing of clinical trials to test whether it actually works. And all this has cost companies like Lilly billions of dollars so far, with not much to show for it. But drug companies hate it when people say their trials have failed. Every avenue closed leads to another promising route to try. And this is a disease being tackled globally in a more collaborative way than ever before. Phyllis Farrell of Lilly says there's too much at stake to stop now. This is a disease that has touched so many families. The number of times that I have someone stop me in the hallway who may work in diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or oncology, and they say, don't give up, don't give up. And this is going to help my family or my friend's family or my husband's family. And I get that happening every day. So while the scientists are busy trying to sort all of this out, meanwhile, what can we do? Neuroscientist Lisa Genova says actually there's quite a lot we can do to lower the risk of getting Alzheimer's in the future. Age is the number one risk factor, and you can't do anything about that. Our genes do influence our likelihood of getting Alzheimer's, but for most of us, or 99% of us, our genes alone will not determine whether we get Alzheimer's. We do know that sleep influences our risk. The more we sleep, the more time we give those janitor cells to clean up the amyloid in the brain. We also know that there's a strong correlation between heart health and your link to Alzheimer's. So we know that being on a Mediterranean diet decreased your risk of Alzheimer's by a third. Similarly, we know that cardiovascular exercise have been shown to clear away amyloid beta and significantly decrease your risk of Alzheimer's. Better diets, more sleep and exercise, and keeping your brain agile by learning new things. Language, traveling, reading books, playing an instrument. We want to educate the world to start to think about their health from the neck up, that we can have some influence over our brain health and live lifestyles that are preventative for Alzheimer's. And we will develop drugs that also prevent you from getting Alzheimer's 30 years down the road. And it's everyone's job to help reduce stigma and raise awareness. Lisa Genova chose to do so by writing a novel, Still Alice, later made into a Hollywood film, earning the actress Julianne Moore an Oscar. Damn it! Why won't you take me seriously? No, I know what I'm feeling. I know what it's feeling, and, and it feels like my brain is dying, and everything I've worked for in my entire life is going. It's all, all, all going. It was aimed at getting you to walk in someone else's shoes and feel what that feels like. And then hopefully it gets rid of some of that shame and stigma and alienation that folks with Alzheimer's live with. Because if we're not familiar with Alzheimer's, we can't bear to look at it. It makes us so uncomfortable. And so we've just turned our backs on 50 million people. Next week, we head to the Netherlands, an international poster child for how to care for people living with dementia, like this fine voice choir at the Oldens House in Amsterdam. It could be an anthem for Alzheimer's.
It is the age stage, a special on RPPFM, Solving Alzheimer's, a BBC production presented by Andrew Bomford and produced by Estelle Doyle. We'll be back in just a moment. Across the Mornington Peninsula, 98.7, 98.3, RPPFM. This is an age stage special, courtesy of the BBC, Exploring Alzheimer's, the most challenging disease in the world and, in the words of the BBC team, demands action from governments, scientists and, most of all, ordinary people. Part 2, Paying for Dementia, the Trillion Dollar Disease. Here's the BBC's Andrew Bomford. Lots of countries have their head in the sand on Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia, because the costs are so eye-watering. Globally, it's a trillion dollar disease. A trillion, that's a one with 12 zeros, a thousand billion dollars, and in 10 years, it will double. So how on earth are we going to pay for it? To help me navigate this thorny issue, I need a guide, an economist who began studying this very question 20 years ago. There were all sorts of different things that might affect what happens in the future, and dementia was one of the areas that kept coming up. And we noticed that people with cognitive impairment costed a lot more than people who had other forms of disability. Adelina Comas Herrera is from the London School of Economics in the UK and leads a global research project exploring how to finance long-term care for dementia patients. We have a lot of people living with dementia in the world, and especially at the more advanced stages, they need a lot of care and support, and quite often at the end, about 24 hours. And to be able to provide that takes a huge amount of effort, and it has a cost. Yeah, there are big medical costs associated with Alzheimer's, which shows itself in memory loss and confusion. There's also the cost of research for new treatments and drugs. But what makes Alzheimer's so challenging and expensive is the full-time, hands-on social care it demands, looking after patients at home or in residential care for years. A lot of this cost is borne by families, so it's unpaid care, so it, there isn't a financial exchange, but it means that when these people are providing care, they're not doing other things, and these other things might be engaging in their usual work, so they may have to give up their work to provide care, and that has a long-term cost as well. For every person who gives up her job to care for a family member with Alzheimer's, that's one less salary going into the economy and less tax paid to support public services. You might think it's mostly richer countries with ageing populations that are most affected, but already around 60% of people with dementia are living in low and middle income countries, a proportion which will increase as populations get bigger and older. Economist Adelina Comas says the impact of dementia on developing countries is disproportionately higher. Some of it is to do with the combination of the challenges that dementia poses and poverty. And it's much harder for families where maybe the older person is the breadwinner because they're farmers and they need to be working and they, they don't have a pension system that allows them to retire. Their children have moved to a city and then they don't have access to family care in the way that they would have traditionally done. So, I mean, you know, the impact is, is, is very different simply because of the state of the healthcare systems and the ability of the countries to pay. Yes, uh, and the, the ability care. of for families to respond to this. Quite often they don't have universal health coverage. This is my mother-in-law, this is Ditty Klein, my father-in-law, Ari Klein, and I'm Nelleke Klein. And my father-in-law has Alzheimer. In the Dutch village of Hosen near Amsterdam, Alzheimer's patients and their carers are attending a talk on healthy living. The Dutch care system provides a lot of support, like personal care, to people at home if they need it. Dutch academics say this more coordinated approach can delay a patient entering a nursing home by up to a year, saving as much as 80,000 euros or $91,000 each. Luckily, my parents a lot, they can still uh, live uh, independently because they have each week there's somebody coming for us to take care of the, the household, to do cleaning and everything. And they also have somebody who's called a case manager. And then they make sure that you have enough support. They try to stimulate as much as possible to not go into a care home. Of course, I'm lucky because my mother-in-law is so vital still.
but even here, a third of Dutch Alzheimer's patients cannot avoid full-time nursing home care forever, and the country has pioneered innovative approaches. It was the first to design purpose-built dementia villages where residents can go to the cafe or to the shops in a safe and controlled environment, but one cut off from the outside world. But the more sustainable goal is to put nursing homes in the heart of real 21st century communities and make use of innovative technology. Hello. 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 What can I do for you? A sprightly 82-year-old man is waiting for us in his apartment at Wissershaven, a specialist nursing home for dementia sufferers in Bergen-Obsom, a town near the Belgian border. My name is Cor Bruis. I like to play soccer, but I don't play any soccer anymore. <laughs> um, I had a beautiful time uh, playing soccer. He was a famous soccer player. Seriously? He was, he was I very good. for the Dutch national youth team. Wow, so you, you played for the Dutch national youth team, you said? Youth yeah. teams. The football must have done him good because Cor looks slim, fit and healthy, despite, he admits, his smoking and drinking. And he goes out into the town for a walk to meet friends every day. I'm completely free to go out. I like to go uh, outside to have a drink or just walk or to play uh, bridge. I can go outside whenever I want. That's very, very important. If I'm not allowed to go wherever, I've got a feeling that I'm in prison. Do you worry sometimes that you might go outside and get lost, forget no, which no, way no, to come no, back? No, 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 not at all. This person is diagnosed with Alzheimer. And when you, you should have seen him when he came in, living here with us. He was totally neglected. Yes, yes. His house was completely dirty. They had to clean up the whole place. He was, um, uh, everything was neglected. Connie and Katja from the home say what makes Vissershaven completely different is the use of technology. Residents' wristbands open doors and allow them to walk out into the town. Uh, that's automatically. Staff can track their movements on tablet computers so they know where they are. Volunteers in town keep an eye out and help out if someone gets lost. You go near the door and you have a bracelet on your wrist. Yes, as well. And that opens the door? Yeah. Okay. Ready and willing. Unable. And when we walk along the corridor, yeah. the floor is designed to look like a pavement of a street. Yeah. And people's yeah. rooms have their front doors with these photographs of real front doors on there. That's right. It gives you a feeling of uh, being home. Yeah. Where are we going to? We're going outside. So outside. You, you lead the way, you know the way. Outside, we walk along a pavement by a busy road. It's a myth, Connie and Katja say, that Alzheimer's patients might just wander out into the middle of the traffic. So how often do you come out for a walk? Every day. Every day? Every day. Bergen-Obsom is a very old city, so uh, I like to go to the centre of the city, uh, have a drink, have a smoke. I play bridge a couple of times a week and I'm glad I'm still able to walk. You soon notice Cor repeating himself. He doesn't remember what he said five minutes ago. It's the only obvious sign that he has Alzheimer's. I asked Connie Helder, Chief Executive Officer of the Tant Louise Group, which owns the nursing home, if they're taking chances with vulnerable dementia patients. Connie says they think their methods increase life expectancy, but they don't yet have the data to prove it. People are better off, they have a better quality of life, they stay much more mobile, so the condition of the residents stays very much the same or even improves, and then at the end of life, 
they either die of a different cause or they die of dementia, but only in a very short period of time, being days or weeks instead of months or years sometimes. Here people stay on their feet, go on uh, about their day, and only in the last couple of days or weeks they start to die. So we, we sort of flatten out the good period and the bad period is very short. I met Jupp Marcus, whose father Funt lived at Wissershaven for more than four years until he died from Alzheimer's. He had so much joy that he uh, started calling Wissershaven his home after a short period of time. Once there was a malfunction with the home automation, uh, a period of about two weeks, I think, uh, when he couldn't leave his department. Even in that short period of time, he got depressed. So how is this level of care paid for? And what does it cost families per month? It's hardly anything. It's around 100, 125 euros, I think. Very affordable. In many other systems, it's the families who have to pay. And uh, it's very, very, very expensive. My, my, my mother is still mentally very well. She still handles her own finances. She often says, uh, I've never, ever been as rich as I am today. It's actually the Dutch Health and Long-Term Care Insurance, funded through the tax system, which is paying for most of this care. And it is expensive. Bissesarven costs around 7,000 euros, or $8,000 a month, per patient. Like South Korea, Holland has made the tough political choice to invest money on health and long-term care. And there seems to be political consensus. We spend a lot of money on long-term care, and every political party in Holland is in favour of investing more in the elderly care, because we are convinced that that's what they deserve. Hugo Younger is the country's health minister and deputy prime minister. Nowadays we spend uh, among 80,000 per patient and this will increase to 100,000 per patient. So we will be spending on the end of this cabinet term 13 billion euros on our nursing homes. That's a lot of money, but it's still it's, it's worth it. And is that sustainable? No, but not only because of the money. Um, but I think most of all because of the labour market. The people with dementia will double in the next 20, 25 years. Nowadays we have 1.2 million people working in care or cure in Holland in the medical care system. And that is one in seven people on the labour market. We can't double our workforce. Now we have one in seven. It will never be one in four. We can't afford it, of course, but we can't deliver it either. There have to be other <laughs> jobs to be done as well. So. It will never happen, so that means that we have to start now in redesigning our healthcare system. According to our expert, Adelina Comas from the London School of Economics, the Netherlands has the best system for looking after dementia patients. But as they themselves admit, it's not sustainable, so it cannot be the answer. I don't think we can have the same models of care that we've had in the past when I'm looking at low- and middle-income countries where the resource constraints are there from the beginning, they are having already to think about much more efficient ways of delivering care to larger numbers of, of people with less resources. And I think in the rich world, we are going to have to learn from that as well. And that means we have to do more in people's neighborhoods and less in hospitals. We also have to introduce more robotics, more e-health solutions, and not as a replacement of the labor force, but uh, as an enabler. And yes, we do need volunteers. We will have to get used to live with much more older people and also older people with dementia than we are used to now. And that means we have to be dementia friendly much more than we are now. So what does a dementia-friendly society look like? Andrew Bomford and the BBC Special explores that question next. This is the AIDS stage. We'll be back in just a moment. This is RPPFM, Radio Port Phillip on 98.7 and 98.3 FM. Local people, local issues. This is an AIDS stage special on RPPFM and the final stanza in a special program presented by Andrew Bomford and producer Estelle Doyle. 
in this confronting section, Living and Dying with Alzheimer's. The last evening before she died, we went to a three, four star restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> we had a beautiful meal, uh, laughed and cried, and there was no tomorrow mm-hmm. that evening. That was so special. Then you go home, and um, well, it's very hard to get uh, sleep the night before. Brother and sister Frank and Annika, remembering the last night of their mother Annie's life. She wrote a letter to God to take care of us. Yeah, to take care of her children, but that she was convinced that she made the right decision. For Annie Zweinenberg, who had Alzheimer's disease, that decision was euthanasia and she'd known it from the day she was diagnosed. She never wavered. She knew that if there was a God, it would be a really warm, forgiving God. And but she um, said, it's a pity that I can't send an email back to my children to tell them how yeah. it is. <laughs> In this program, we're going to talk about death and dying with Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia. It's one of the first things people who are diagnosed think about. How many times have you heard someone say, I'd rather die than change personality and forget everything and everyone I've ever known? But we're also going to talk about living well with Alzheimer's too and the incredible difference people, just normal people, can make. We'll hear Andy's story, transformed by playing rugby. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But first, let's get back to the story of Annie in the Netherlands. Holland is one of very few countries to allow euthanasia to deliberately end someone's life to relieve suffering. But let me stress that no one here is saying it can ever be a solution to the Alzheimer's crisis. The Dutch see it as a matter of personal choice. But Annie's story is important because she was always clear about her consent. And as we'll discover, consent and the capacity to consent is the big concern when it comes to Alzheimer's patients choosing euthanasia. According to her son and daughter, Frank and Annika, Annie had no doubt what to do when she was diagnosed. It was very easy for her when she got diagnosed and said, well, then I know what to do. Yeah. And that's euthanasia. The neurologist said, but, yeah, okay, excuse me. There are very happy people with dementia. And then she said, if you guarantee me that I will be a happy patient. Yeah. I said, I can't do that. Okay, decision made. Within two, three minutes after the diagnosis. Annie's journey through Alzheimer's, leading right up to her death, is featured in a film made by the Dutch director, Gerald van Bronckhorst. We see how the strong and decisive woman described there by her children is hamstrung by the growing confusion and distress caused by Alzheimer's. In the film, Annie talks fondly about her family and her once active life and love of mountain climbing and how all that has changed. 166 people with dementia chose euthanasia in Holland in 2017, a tiny proportion of the tens of thousands who have the disease. Annie, who was 81 when she died, was very keen that people understand her decision, so she allowed a camera to film her on her last day. In the film, we see Annie sitting on the sofa, looking relaxed and positive. A doctor asks her several times if she understands that she's about to die. You're sure you want to drink the mixture I'll give you? The doctor asks. You know it'll put you to sleep and you won't wake up again. Annie nods and says, I thought it through once again last night, from start to finish and back. And in the end, this is what I want, purely for myself. This is what's best for me. He hands her a glass of clear liquid and there's no hesitation. Annie begins to drink it. After a sip, she grimaces slightly. I don't like the taste very much. (laughs) It takes five deep gulps to swallow the liquid down. Annie's children gather round her 
The tears are now flowing. It's still hard to see your mother die. It was not our decision, it was her decision. A good friend of mine, he said to me, I said, you have to stop your mother. As a son, you have to stop. I said, no, I'm not going to. Mm. I support her. His mother said, you're killing your mother, you murder your mother if you go on with this. But that's an opinion eh? that lives, it's hard to hear. And it's not just Frank's friend who thinks this could be murder. In Holland, there's a vigorous debate about dementia patients being able to choose euthanasia, even more so now, with a case currently going through the law courts. A doctor's become the first person ever to be prosecuted for breaching the euthanasia law by ending the life of a patient in the very late stages of dementia whose wishes were unclear. According to a euthanasia review committee, the patient had signed a written declaration saying she wanted euthanasia, but not until she said she was ready. And at times, she also said she did not want to die. The committee further found that when her condition worsened to the point that she couldn't communicate anymore, the doctor slipped a sedative into her coffee. And then, when attempting to administer a lethal dose of drugs into her arm, the patient woke up and had to be restrained by members of her family while the doctor completed the euthanasia. The doctor, though, maintains she acted cautiously. The commission said that the doctor should have stopped anyway the procedure the moment the patient got up again and rethink whether you should perform euthanasia, yes or no. Jakob Konstam is the coordinating chair of all the Dutch regional review committees, which examine every euthanasia case. The commission said that the due care criteria in this case were not complied with mainly because of the written will of that patient that wrote down, if I'm not recognizing anyone anymore, and if I still want it by then, please help me die. And that phrase, and if I still want it by then, was the reason why they said the due care criteria aren't met with. Even though he's concerned about this case, he still believes that patients with very advanced dementia where the will is clear and there is unbearable suffering, should be allowed to die by euthanasia. If I decide that I don't want to live dement in a longer period, that's my decision. And whether I change because I've become dement and I'm not able to communicate anymore, that's my decision, isn't it? I wrote down with a notary what's going to happen with this house when I die. Well, when I'm dying, I'm another person, I guess. But my will will still be my will, and no one is going to contest it. Okay, but no discussion of euthanasia and Alzheimer's is complete without using the phrase slippery slope. Think about the classic case of the boiling frog. I'm not sure if the fable's true, but the frog supposedly doesn't realize it's being boiled because the water's being heated up gradually. I have seen the shift, and the problem is that the shift is very difficult to catch. It's happening under your nose, and in the end, you realize that there has been a shift. In a restaurant in Amsterdam, I met Berner van Barsen, a medical ethicist, who resigned from one of the euthanasia review committees because she thinks familiarity is making people accept these dementia cases too easily. When you help a person to die, you have to know for 100% sure that he or she wants to die. You can write it down, what your fears are, what you don't want to experience, but it is a wish, it is an expression of a fear. As we know, people change. If people get ill, they change, they cope. In the beginning they say, oh no, I don't want to live in an old people's house or I don't want to be put in a wheelchair. And then it happens and people always find ways to cope. I think that is the beautiful thing of being human. Dutch prosecutors are trying to draw a line on when you can allow patients with very advanced dementia to be euthanized 
there's no consensus, even among doctors specialising in Alzheimer's cases. Someone who's prepared to carry out euthanasia on patients with late-stage dementia is Constance de Vries, and she's troubled that another doctor is now being prosecuted. I think compassion is very important. I believe my colleague did her very best to make it as good as possible. And she has administered euthanasia on a patient with advanced Alzheimer's. The lady gets very unhappy. She was crying and yelling and not eating and not sleeping and aggressive to other people and very unhappy. When you saw her, you saw how unhappy she was. And she always had it in a statement. When I, uh, I gave her a glass of juice, I said, when you take it, you will sleep forever. She looked at her daughter and the daughter said, it's okay, mom. She took it. I don't know if she did understand it fully, but I knew what we did, but that was okay. So unhappy was she. This case that we were just talking about involving the doctor who's being prosecuted, has it made you think any differently about the job that you are doing? Has it worried you? Has it made you think twice about these very, very difficult cases involving people with very late-stage dementia? This is making me worried, yes. Yes, my husband is also uh, concerned about what I'm doing, and he knows I'm very um, uh, carefully about what I'm doing. But you have no intention of stopping what you're doing? No, I don't. No, 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 no. But Constance de Vries says other doctors might be more reluctant, and this will make it harder for dementia patients who want euthanasia. Many of these patients worry that if they wait too late, they'll be denied it. In Holland, the dilemma is commonly referred to as five to midnight. Everyone wants to leave the party at the last possible moment, a bit like Cinderella. But if they wait to the very end, there's a high chance a doctor will say they're no longer competent to make the decision. It's the one regret Annika and Frank had about their mother Annie's death. Could she have waited longer? Could she have had more time to enjoy life? Did she die before her time? She was very afraid that even when she had the law on her side or she had the doctors on her side, that there would be a point that somebody would say, okay, but sorry, you're too far gone now. You can't make this decision anymore. So sorry, you're too late. Do you not worry that that forces people to take this action too soon, Certainly, too early. Certainly, yeah. that's, that's the hard part of it. It's not just in the Netherlands that people are struggling with these ethical dilemmas. In the Canadian province of Quebec, there's an active debate over whether dementia patients should be allowed to choose euthanasia, as well as in other countries and regions where assisted dying is permitted. But if the fear of Alzheimer's was not so extreme, perhaps such drastic measures would not be necessary. Surely we need to find better ways of living with Alzheimer's. We've spoken to people all over the world for this series and everyone seems to agree that we can only do this by changing the way people think about dementia. Take South Korea, for example, the fastest aging country in the world, where the sheer number of elderly people living with dementia has put it in the forefront of finding innovative solutions. In the capital, Seoul, Inye Park shows me her proudest moment, winning a dance contest with a group of dementia patients. Disco. Disco Park. Okay. Her nickname, she says, is Disco Park. And she jokes that she's donating her dancing talents to society. An energetic woman in her mid-60s she decided when she retired that becoming a so-called memory friend or dementia partner was the best use of her time. And so now she volunteers leading awareness projects, running activities for dementia patients and training others to become dementia partners. 
After meeting Inye Park, my fixer and translator Eunice takes me to an old part of Seoul, to a neighborhood called Kumho. This area considered to be very undeveloped area, and a lot of people who, after the war, like who has no house, stick together and like stay in here. But now it's all the fancy houses, all the group building, new buildings are built. But still, it's kind of unusual to keep this uh, old style of uh, street market in the center of the town like this. And here, several shops which have been here for many generations have decided to become dementia friendly. This involves a few days of training, and only after completion are they awarded their certificate. Kim Tae-su runs a rice cake cafe, and on the day of our visit, she was proudly displaying her new sticker on the shop front, saying they're dementia friendly. Because her, one of her family members having a dementia, that's why she's so into this program and she thinks it's a very necessary program. So when she sees people act strange or them seems like having a dementia, she go up to them and find out if they're okay and if they're not. She's the one who's taking care of them and take to the center or the police station. According to the National Korean Police, 27 people a day with dementia went missing in 2016 sometimes with tragic consequences, and the numbers have since increased. Earlier memories are the most vivid, so often dementia patients remember past addresses better than their current ones. And this is where shop owners like Kim Tae-soo can play a crucial role. Time and time again, we've found that the spur for real change is when Alzheimer's affects people's own families. So maybe the big growth in numbers will cause a positive ripple effect through communities, wherever they are in the world. Really, though, it's about having a can-do attitude. I'm in Worcester, in the English Midlands, home to Worcester Warriors, the English Premiership Rugby Union team, who for about 18 months now have been inviting people with dementia to attend their home games. They call it safe places. They provide an area of the stadium where people can watch the game and feel safe in doing so. But why stop there? Why not also give people with dementia a chance to play rugby too? And that's what's happening here tonight. <laughs> this is a bit of a novel experience. Isn't it, it is, very. Right. <laughs> Have you played rugby before? Uh, no. <laughs> well, good luck. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll need it. Hopefully, it goes well. Meet Andy Busby, who has dementia. He was forced to retire from his high-flying job in the chemicals industry in 2015 at the age of just 58. His condition has severely affected his speech and he gets very anxious and depressed. In the bus on the way to the training ground, he was getting more and more anxious, telling his wife Jackie that he couldn't do it, that he couldn't play rugby tonight. I thought he might start to panic until Jackie managed to calm him down. He was very nervous. He was bus, nervous, wasn't he, yeah, yeah. Yes, he does get a bit confused, so... And that's fear of the unknown, or what? Yes, it is, really. Just the not understanding, like he used to be able to, is not being able to process information. So I can tell him several times what's happening, but he doesn't retain it anymore. So it's fear. It is fear, and not being able to understand. OK, gentlemen, ladies, and anybody else, what you want to be? Welcome! This is known as mixed ability rugby. Almost everyone here has some sort of disability, including some players who have dementia. Don't worry about it, Andy. It's no, no contact. We're not going to smash into each other. Not straight away. Anyway. And within minutes, there's no stopping Andy. He's running up the pitch. He's got his head down. Right, Andy. Yes. yes. I saw you run the entire length of the pitch to score a try. Yes. <laughs> it's brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. What you imagined? Uh, better. Because you were really worried about doing this before you I was. Came. I was really. Yeah. 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 I thought I'd just make it up for myself. And <laughs> Fantastic. Well done. Well done. Thanks very much. <laughs> Watching all that, Jackie, Andy's wife, is all smiles. But he looks a different person now, doesn't he? He was utterly transformed. Yeah. Which just shows, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. <laughs> yeah, confidence. Yes, he'll be full of it, which is great. 
Rob Stewart from the Alzheimer's Society has been here watching. The problem with dementia is I think a lot of people underestimate what people with, who are affected by dementia can actually achieve, sporting-wise, intellectually, socially, and this typifies what happens when you really do push the boundaries and, and take a risk with rugby, because it's an inherently risky sport, but the guys with dementia that are playing tonight are just rising to the challenge in a really, really sort of admirable way. I really take my hat off to them. Not only better rugby players than me, but far braver than I'll ever be as well. After the game, we all went to the stadium in Worcester, where the Warriors were playing Harlequins. Aside from the practical difficulties of getting to and from a sports stadium like this if you have dementia, being in the middle of the big crowd can be a bewildering, overwhelming and frightening experience. Worcester's answer is the safe space, an executive box where anyone with sensory difficulties like dementia can come to watch the game, away from the hubbub in the crowd. No, it's not. It's good, that. It's the first time Andy and Jackie have felt able to watch a live game. And they also attend a dementia cafe held at the ground each week for sufferers and their carers. Here's Simon Northcott, from the Worcester Warriors Foundation. We've got to look after our communities. From what we've found with our dementia cafe is the fact that people want to start having a normal life and to hear comments of, I've got my husband back, and people living well with dementia suddenly saying, wow, I'm, I'm doing what I always used to do. And that's, that's what we're doing it for, because those stories are priceless and, quite frankly, you know, the motivation to carry on. And that's what the community needs. Communities need people, and people are the answer. We've spoken to many people around the world for this series, and while it's easy to be dazzled by the massive scale of the Alzheimer's challenge, the huge costs, and the impossibility of providing enough care, what it really boils down to is changing attitudes. And it's a disease which requires all of us to change. You've been listening to Living and Dying with Alzheimer's, the final episode of Solving Alzheimer's. The series was presented by me, Andrew Bomford, and produced by Estelle Doyle. And here at RWPFM, we thank and acknowledge the BBC World Service for the use of Andrew Bomford and producer Estelle Doyle's special, Solving Alzheimer's, heard earlier this year on the BBC World Service. The Age Age returns next week. See you then. Across the Peninsula. 98.7, 98.3, RPPFM.